Our Father, we thank you that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can share together in a common heritage, a common goal, a common destiny. We're so grateful that in all that we do, we can rest in the strength of the Spirit of the living God to empower us, to enable us. Lord, we live in a fallen world, and we need you to cleanse us from the tainting of that world that comes to us day by day, and to keep our eyes focused on you and your purpose. I ask, Lord, that during this hour, our thoughts will be your thoughts. You will instruct us through your word that we will have a better understanding of what you are saying to us through this passage in Exodus, through the life of this man, Moses. And again, Father, we think of the many classes that are taking place at this hour, all the way from the smallest children to adults, and we pray that you will be present in every class and uh, causing each one to hear from you today. May this be truly an hour of power. In Jesus' name, amen. In our study of the life of Moses, we have come to the, we've just been spending some time looking at Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush and following that, uh, in that meeting between God and Moses, Moses, with this commission in his heart, with the words of God literally ringing in his ear, makes his journey back to his father-in-law in Midian. And, and you can look at that map if you'd like, and you'll notice that over here on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba is the land of Midian. Now, precise borders were never made in those days, at least for lands such as Midian, because Midian was not at that time really a country with a central government and, and national borders and so forth was simply the land in which dwelt the uh, people of that tribe of Midian. And uh, so somewhere along in that region was where they were located, where Jethro lived, where Moses had his home. And so he had to retreat back to that place from Mount Sinai. And you'll notice Mount Sinai is clear at the, near the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula here. That's the primarily accepted Mount Sinai. As I mentioned before, there are others who argue for a Mount Sinai elsewhere, but tradition has held to this mountain. It's sort of like when it comes to the mountains of Ararat. Uh, people can argue, well, the mountains of Ararat are here, the mountains of Ararat are there, but there is a long-standing tradition as to what is Mount Ararat. I mean, the tradition goes back thousands of years. And so rather than argue against tradition simply because someone else doesn't like that idea and comes up with no significant proof, I don't think there's any point in going with another possibility. Some put Mount uh, Sinai way up in the north part of the Sinai Peninsula. But through the, uh, the lives of the Arabs as well as the tradition of the Jews, this has been the mountain that has been considered to be the mountain referred to here in Genesis and in, in Exodus. And so Moses is retreating from this mountain to the north and then over the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, then south into Midian to see his father-in-law. He's going back to his father-in-law to seek permission to go to the land of Egypt. And last week we spent a little time about talking about why he sought permission from his father-in-law. After all, he was 80 years old. 
You know, he'd been married to his, uh, his wife for many, many years. It's, it's not like he's a, you know, a, a child in his minority. He has to get permission to do things. But it's because primarily that his father was the acknowledged clan chief of the whole area. And his father was a priest unto Yahweh. And so out of respect and out of desire to, to, to maintain family uh, order, uh, he went back to get permission from his father-in-law to, to make a trip over to the land of Egypt. Now his father-in-law seemingly relatively readily <laughs> gave him permission or even gave him a blessing. said, go in peace, shalom. But Moses seemed to be a little reticent to make the trip. So as we noted last time in the fourth chapter of Exodus, this is verses 19 through 23, we won't read those again, but Moses seemed to be a little slow getting on the way. And so God appears to him twice. God said, first of all, well, the, the kings, those in authority who wanted to kill you in Egypt, they're all dead now, so you don't have to worry about that. And then God a little later appeared to him and said, now these are the things that are going to happen. You know, you're going to speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to reject uh, your message, but you're, I'm going to slay his, his son in Egypt. And so through these appearances, God really spurs Moses on. And so he finally sets out. Now the scripture tells us he sets out with his family, with his wife and his two sons. And, and he begins this journey towards Egypt. Let's uh, read Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, if that's not a weird passage. <laughs> In the middle of this whole account, you know, we've been studying God's meeting of Moses at the burning bush. And God empowers him and, and, and gives him this commission to go and to lead Israel out. And he finally goes through all the uh, excuses why he can't do it. And finally God says, hey, do the job, huh? And, and so he goes on back to get permission to go. And now he's doing that. And now we have this. And, you know, it just seems to be a really strange account. He's being obedient. He's going to Egypt, as God had said. Now, God had not said anything of warning so far in, in the three encounters, right? Nothing we read, anyway, of there being any problem. So he's on the way into the Sinai. And probably he's traveling, most likely he's traveling down this route here, the, the route that's closely parallel to the Gulf of Aqaba, heading south towards Mount Sinai, having come up over the top, the little dotted line, dashed line, indicating probably the route he took from his home. We don't know exactly where his home was. But in Midian, over the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, now he's heading south towards the mountain of Sinai. Somewhere along that route, he comes to the lodging place. Now, the, if you have the New American Standard, which is what I'm using, or the New International Version in front of you, that's the translation, lodging place. 
If you happen to have the King James, it says in, I-N-N, you know, as in motel, sort of. Now, given the route Moses is following here, the chances of there being an inn out there are pretty nil. I mean, we're not talking about I-5 here <laughs> or I-anything. He's going on a route that was probably only traveled by shepherd pushing sheep because there weren't any villages or towns that we know of of any significance in the Sinai. Nobody would be traveling down there to trade because there wasn't any place to trade. And so nobody would go down there except in the case of a few errant shepherds who were pushing their sheep into the desert. So probably the NASB and the NIV translations are more accurate here. Lodging place, or it can also be translated campsite. And, and that would, to our modern way of thinking, be even more uh, appropriate probably to what is really happening here. They, they simply came to a place to stay overnight. It was probably a place known to Moses since he had traveled back and forth. It probably was an oasis. There probably was a spring there, and the shepherds were aware of it, so he took his family there to stay overnight. First night, second night, third night, we aren't told. Uh, I, I rather think it's probably several nights into the journey, but still early in the journey. He has not come to Mount Sinai yet. And, and as we look at this, we find a very incongruous and chilling statement there at the end of verse 24. The Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now, as you, as you read that, you think, I mean, God has already been with Moses three times before. What's the deal here? Why didn't God do something to Moses before now? Why is it all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appears in the middle of the night, probably in the desert, and seeks to kill Moses? And we're not given any details. You know, it doesn't say that he came as a, as a dark figure in the night or as a, as a wind or a glowing form. It doesn't say anything. It just says God sought to kill him. So the angel of the Lord probably appeared in some form and it became very obvious to Moses and Zipporah that this was a life-endangering encounter, that Moses was in trouble. Now, what was it? Uh, was the angel Lord standing there with a dagger? Or, or was Moses suddenly deathly ill with a, with, a, with a terrible fever? Had he caught some virulent disease? Had he suddenly become leprous to the point of death, uh, we're not told what this life-threatening situation was. But whatever it was, they became convinced that Moses could die momentarily. Now, Zipporah acts. Now, how does she know what to do? <laughs> you know, suddenly Moses is about ready to be killed and she goes and circumcises her son. Now, how does she know what to do here? Well, I think there are three possibilities. First, that in the encounter, God spoke and said, Moses, because you have failed to do this, you're about to die. Or maybe he simply spoke to Moses in his heart, and Moses immediately spit it out to Zipporah and said, I'll die unless you do this. Or maybe God spoke directly to Zipporah. We don't know exactly how God communicated what needed to be done here. But whatever was the case, Zipporah knew what to do, and she did it. She took a flint knife. Now, those of us who are accustomed to modern surgery with finely honed surgical steel, 
the idea of a flint knife is, is not too appealing. But she took this flint knife and she circumcised her son. No, no, flint, uh, you know, when it's, when it's chipped just right, flint-like obsidian will conchoidally fracture. So you can make a pretty sharp edge, but, you know, it still doesn't seem all that uh, desirable. Isn't that what was used in the circumcision right? Generally speaking, yes. <laughs> it just seems to glare at us from this, <laughs> this particular passage because it's made so clear to us. She circumcised her youngest son, Eliezer. Now, it's obvious that Moses had failed to do what Moses knew he was supposed to do. Moses knew the word of God. It had been transferred down orally, probably, even though there are some who feel that uh, some of the early records of Scripture were actually written down and handed down in written form. But whatever the case was, Moses knew the truth. He knew what was the sign, the seal of the covenant of God with Israel. But, but you know, to us today, it, it seems like God's making a, a big thing out of something reasonably small. But to God, it was a very important matter. I think just to uh, illustrate that, we should turn back to the 17th chapter of Genesis for a moment. 17th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 9. Uh, God is again appearing to Moses as he had twice before, I mean to Abraham, as to Abraham as he had twice before. And in the 17th uh, chapter, we're told that Abraham was 99 and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. And then he gives to him the promises and, 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 and tells of him of the covenant. And then in verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight years old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God is very, very serious about this. The sign of circumcision was the seal of the covenant of God. It began there. It began with that act of obedience. And from that point on, of course, it, it also involved personal heartfelt obedience to God. Being circumcision didn't make, circumcised didn't make you in like Flynn. Simply, you know, you're, you're in God's kingdom. But you had to start with that. That was the, the initiation rite, if you will, into the uh, people of God. And then, of course, your own individual faith and actions would either confirm or deny the reality of your ultimate faith. To fail to employ the seal was, in, fact, in effect, a breach of the covenant. And as we noted in this passage, an uncircumcised person was cut off from his people, which when you talk about being cut off from your people of ancient Israel, that meant they were liable to be executed, to be actually 
put to death because it symbolized an unregenerate heart. No desire to be obedient or to be a part of God's people. The depth of the spiritual meaning of circumcision is referred to so many times in the Old Testament. Over and over again it comes up. But a place where it is very interestingly illustrated, I think, is in the life of David. You remember before David was king, fairly early on in his encounter with Saul, David's brothers had been inducted into Saul's army. And Saul's army had gone over into the uh, southwestern part of the country, into the Shephelah, the, the hill country, to encounter the Philistines. Now the Philistines possessed a strip of what is today modern Israel along the coast, from Gaza, the Gaza Strip that we know of today, all the way north almost to the Yarkon River uh, near modern Tel Aviv. Uh, that whole region was known the Philistine Plain. Well, the Philistines, because they were early possessors of iron, often dominated part or all of Israel. And at this time, the kingdom of Saul, which was beginning to, to develop, was threatened. And so Saul took an army down to meet the Philistines over sort of on their border, near what is known as today as the Tel of Azekah. Well, David was sent by his father to, David apparently was, quote, too young to be in the army. Now, don't picture him as a little kid. He was no little kid. But he was, somebody had to take care of the sheep, so he was at home taking care of the sheep while his older brothers were off fighting. And so his father sent him with uh, goodies for the boys. Uh, you know, they didn't have sea uh, rations in those days. And so you had to uh, send food to the army and and so he was carrying food to the army and, and a little gift for the captain of the group that the boys were in. And when he got there, he found the whole Israelite army encamped and cowering under the threats of a giant by the name of Goliath. Now, now David was kind of an upstart of a kid, you know, having killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. He wasn't too frightened by much of anything. And he wondered what was going on. And, and then the hour came when Goliath came out to give his daily challenge. And David heard that uh, challenge that was being issued by Goliath. And the scripture tells us in 1 Samuel that as he was listening to this, he spoke out loud to the Israelite soldiers that were around him. And David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now, David was not commenting on his uh, physical condition here. David was commenting on his spiritual condition. David was talking about the fact that this guy being uncircumcised, it symbolized something else. It symbolized an unregenerate heathen here. And David was incensed that the army of the God of Israel was cowering before this blustering pagan because this challenge that was being issued to the army of God was in effect being issued to God himself. <laughs> and David just couldn't understand why they could stand around and take that. And of course, we know what happened after that. David said, let me go fight him. He, you know, like, knows no question about it. You won't do it, I'll do it. I mean, a guy will be no harder to kill than a bear or a lion, certainly. So we understand that circumcision had a, a, a deep, deep spiritual meaning for Israel. 
Eliezer was just a, ba a child. We don't know how old he was. Apparently fairly young yet. Young enough that he was still riding on a donkey instead of walking. And too young to be responsible for himself. So who was responsible? Moses was responsible. Moses was responsible from the beginning. He was supposed to have been circumcised on the eighth day. And who knows how much later than the eighth day this was. Could have been years later. Now, apparently Gershom, the older son, had been circumcised and there was no problem with him. The question is, why wasn't Eliezer circumcised? Well, Scripture doesn't say. But I, th I think there are two very possible reasons here. One was in the, f in the sense that Moses was off on these long journeys. He was moving the sheep distant, long distances away. And it could very well have been that Eliezer was born while he was a hundred miles away with the sheep. And that before he ever got back, Eliezer was, you know, long past the eighth day, maybe months, maybe even, you know, many months old before Moses even got back. And besides, you know, Moses has had an encounter with God and his mind is all preoccupied with God's call upon him now. He's got a job to do. And so he kind of overlooked his duty, you could say, here. You know, I, I, to me, as I thought about that, it reminds me of the fact that in doing the obvious will that God has set before us, He has set before us this thing to do. We dare not neglect His other demands upon our lives. We dare not refuse to obey in other areas. We, we dare not neglect spiritual preparation and obedience in areas that may be only auxiliary, in our minds at least, to the particular goal that is set before us. Our lives need to be led daily in constant confession of sin. There's not a one of us who doesn't sin every day in our thought, in our attitude, our actions, our words, because we're of the flesh and the world and the devil are constantly beating upon us. And so we need to have a heart of confession and contrition and we need to be seeking God's strength in correcting our failures. God honors faithful obedience. But it's very important to know that God does not overlook presumption. I'd like to read a couple of passages in the Psalms that support this concept of being clean before God in our ministry, whatever it might be. In Psalm 18, beginning at verse 20, Psalm 18, beginning at verse 20, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Now this is not teaching a works righteousness here. This is simply teaching the concept of, of course, we come into God's presence by faith, by submission, and by his grace we're kept clean. But there is an action that we a need to take, and that is an action of confession. 
of repentance. And, and this is something that keeps us clean before God. In, in the more well-known 24th Psalm, we read these words beginning at the first verse. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We uh, have suffered over the past hundred years at least and, and probably uh, certainly uh, virtually every time in, in church history has had its kind of a easy believism teaching. Just come to Jesus, say, Lord, I need you, forgive me and make me your person. And, and suddenly we're, we've got it made, you know, we've got our fire insurance. And, and so we can just go on living however we feel like after that. And it doesn't really matter. But, you know, as you read through these passages, that just isn't true. Um, if we're really God's child, we will want to live righteously. If we don't want to live righteously, there is great doubt as to the fact that we've ever really become his child in the first place. I, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we uh, move along here in a minute. A, a second possibility as to why Eliezer hadn't been circumcised, may have been that Zipporah opposed the practice. Now, this seems to be intimated in this passage a little bit here. She may have witnessed the pain and the blood involved in the circumcision of her first son, Gershom. Now, she may have decided, this is yucky. I don't want this to happen to my other son. And it could be that Moses had deferred to his wife and said, well, if it's that big a deal, okay, we'll just skip it. That's a possibility here. And, and you kind of almost see this in her attitude, don't you? The way she responds. She does it and she flings the, the cut-off portion at his feet and says, you're a bloody husband. I mean, you know, there's just no sense of cooperation and camaraderie here, a sense of what this meaning, uh, the meaning is of this. It's like she just thinks the whole thing stinks. Well... Whichever was the case, certainly he was at fault because it was his responsibility, whatever was her role in the whole thing. The question, I guess, that we can ask is, why is God so deadly serious about this? I mean, he's called Moses, said, this is what you are going to do. This is the word you're going to preach in, uh, in Egypt. These are the signs I'm giving to you, and this is what's going to happen and now it looks like God's going to snuff him out. Does God you know, not know what he's doing here? Does he change his mind so quickly? It, it just, you know, it's, it's hard for us to really, at first sight, and you can understand how unregenerate people who sit down and read the Bible, you know, they read through the Genesis, they read through Exodus, and of course they get to Leviticus and they give the whole thing up. But, uh, you know, they start reading through and they, my goodness, <laughs> I think I mentioned to you before, professors I had back in, in state university uh, felt that God was psychotic <laughs> because of the way 
he seemed to act in the Old Testament. But, but of course, that was an unregenerate mind who didn't understand the truth and, and really the absolute consistency of God through it all. Certainly God's purpose here was to impress upon Moses and to impress upon Zipporah, his wife, the paramount importance of the absolute obedience to the word of God. That's what we read back in the 18th chapter of Psalms. He says, I did all your statutes. I walked in obedience to all of your word. We, unfortunately, living in a day in America where the word of God is shunted aside. And many churches, you can go through a whole service and not hear a single phrase from the word of God. And to me, that is detestable and deplorable. Because if we aren't here to study the word of God, what are we here for? You know, just a little rally? A cheer, cheer time, you know? Well, it, that doesn't hurt. But if it doesn't focus on the word of God, we're wasting our time. We might as well stay home and get a few extra hours of sleep or whatever. Better there than here. <laughs> <laughs> Moses was being sent as the leader of God's people. He was to deliver God's people out of bondage in Egypt. And for the leader to have such a glaring act of disobedience on his record, uncorrected, would have been a great stumbling block to Israel. Great stumbling block to Israel. Why did God destroy Saul, king of Israel? Because before all Israel, he blatantly disobeyed the word of God and presumptuously took over the, the role of the priest, the job given to Samuel. God destroyed him. Because the leader of Israel cannot live his life with impunity relative to the commands of God. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important the Scripture gives us clear instructions as to how the leaders of the church are to be, are to live. We, we're familiar with the passage, but I thought it would be, do us good to read it again from 1 Timothy. Because it's really, really important, I think, that we don't leave what we see in the life of Moses 3,000 years in history, but we relate it to where we live today. God gives very explicit instructions relative to the leadership of his church. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man desires to the office of overseer, which means elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. But the overseer, the elder, then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, which means self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine. Literally, the, as I understand it, the Greek here says, not lingering over the cup. Uh, not pugnacious, not, you know, violent person, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. Boy, in 20th century America, that really trims the uh, potential down. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeps keeping his children under control with all dignity, which probably means 
you know, not hollering uh, at them 24 hours a day. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he ever take care of the, of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must, and he must have a good reputation, reputation with those outside the church, so they may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let these also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, this, this refers to probably deaconesses, maybe in addition to deacons' wives, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's very, very important that the leadership of the church be an example to the congregation, to the people of that body of believers of how to live the Christian life. As, as we've so often heard, you know, it's the example more than the preaching that makes a difference. The preaching's important, but if the preaching isn't followed up by example, the preaching falls on deaf ears. You know, as, as we have heard so often, you know, your, your walk speaks so loud, I can't hear your talk. And so it was with Moses. Moses, you've got to be obedient in this basic thing in order to do this task that God's called you to do. And, and to be a leader in the church, we've got to be obedient to God in these areas. How many church leaders do you know of have fallen because they have thought that the work they were doing for God was so great that God wouldn't mind if they just kind of deviate a little here, deviate a little there. They kind of get a, a, a kind of a demagogic idea of, of who they are. I'm kind of like, I'm only one step below God here because I'm the head of this great ministry. You know, I've got this TV ministry that stretches all around the country and even goes overseas. And so, you know, God will have to just look the other way when I kind of deviate here and deviate there. Oh, no. You've got to walk the line tighter, closer, with greater obedience even in that particular position. Well, Zipporah became convinced of the seriousness of the attack. Moses is going to die if I don't do something. And so she very reluctantly performed the rite of circumcising her youngest son. Now, why did she do it? Whose job was it? It was Moses' job. Why did she do it? Well, this may indicate that Moses was incapacitated. I mean, he may have been so deathly ill he couldn't move a limb. We don't know. It could also be that God wanted her to do it because her attitude had been wrong. And she had resisted it and been a stumbling block. Therefore, she was required to perform the right. Whatever the case was, she did it. But it's quite clear from uh, verse 25 of this passage that it didn't really change her attitude much. 
she took the flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And I don't think she said that tenderly. <laughs> what she's saying is that you are a blood-bought bridegroom. She's implying that in order to keep him as her husband, to keep him alive, she had to shed the blood of her son. No, she wasn't killing her son, but of course he probably sounded like he was dying in the process. Now what's interesting is in verse 28 we read, not verse 28, verse 27. No, verse 26. I'll get it here. So he let him alone. Who's he? God. The angel of the Lord. Instantly Moses was well, released, whatever was binding him, whatever was threatening him, he was instantly removed from that life-threatening condition. Obedience produced instant results in this particular case. Now, we think about this. God sought to put Moses to death. I mean, God can do anything instantly, wherever he wants to. He doesn't have to seek to do it. It's obvious that God was in the process and giving Moses plenty of time to change the situation. God had no desire to kill Moses. He already had a plan for him. But Moses had to know the seriousness of the situation. What happens as a result of this? Well, an interesting thing happens here. It doesn't say it directly, but it's implied here. I think Moses decides, you know, I, I don't think it's a very good thing to have my wife and kids with me on this journey. So I think he right away sent him home. Sent him back to Jethro. Now, it doesn't say that here, but it's implied. First of all, it's implied by the fact that Moses' wife and his two sons are never again mentioned until Mount Sinai upon the exodus. As the exodus is complete and all of Israel gets to Mount Sinai, then his wife and sons are mentioned again. We might say, well, God just didn't say anything about them while they're... No. Let's turn to the 18th chapter of Exodus. Now Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away. Moses had sent her away and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife, that is, Moses' sons and his wife, in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife, and her two sons with her. So Moses' wife and sons got to Mount Sinai because they were brought there by Jethro. They didn't come there with Moses. So he shipped his family back after this encounter with God. Verse 27 of Exodus 4. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed 
And when they had heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, then they bowed low and worshipped. You remember as we studied the account of the burning bush, God had said to Moses, your brother Aaron is coming to meet you. And as we noted at that time, Moses had not seen Aaron for at least 40 years. And even before that, we have no idea how close Moses and Aaron were. Aaron was three years older than Moses. Aaron was not raised in the, in the royal palace of Pharaoh. So what contact had they had? They were probably not close brothers. But God said, your brother is coming because God had said, you know, you, you say you can't speak so well. All right, then I'll let Aaron speak for you because I know he speaks well. <laughs> Moses probably hadn't even thought of his brother. Didn't know how well he spoke. But he wasn't going to let Moses, God wasn't going to let Moses off the hook. Now, had God ever appeared to Aaron or spoken to Aaron before? We have no idea. Scripture is absolutely silent. Did God just suddenly, out of the clear blue sky, speak to Aaron? Possibly. We don't know. But God spoke to Aaron and told him what to do. Go into the wilderness to the mountain of God and meet Moses. <laughs> I mean, you know, you read those words and just, we just kind of pass on. But, you know, put yourself in Aaron's place. Moses? Is he still alive? My brother? The mountain of God? Whoa. And one of the things about this 27th verse especially is that it just telescopes time together. The Lord said to Aaron, go meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, kissed him. Huh. I mean, there are weeks, maybe months involved in that little verse. As God spoke to Aaron, we have no idea what Aaron's reaction was. Who are you, Lord? I mean, did we go through the whole burning bush thing all over again like with Aaron? Who are you, Lord? <laughs> Uh, or was Aaron already walking closely with God? We don't know. We don't even know what the form of the encounter was like. Was it just a voice in the night? Was it a dream? Did God appear to him in some form? Uh, we aren't told. We aren't given that information. And there are a lot of other questions we might ask. How long, how much time was incorporated in, in this? From the time God first spoke to Aaron until he met Moses out at at Mount Sinai. How, how long are we talking about? Weeks? Months? And uh, put, think about it. Aaron was a Hebrew slave in Egypt. How does a Hebrew slave just get up and walk out of Egypt into the desert? I mean, does he get permission? Does he sneak out at night? Do the Egyptians not care? We have no idea. And then, had Aaron ever been out of Egypt before? Probably not. How in the world did he know where Mount Sinai was? I mean, it wasn't like it's a big landmark out there everybody knew about. And uh, probably up to this point, it was not a mountain any well, more well-known by anybody <clears throat> than any other mountain. Meet Moses at the mountain of God. Where's the mountain of God? God. God certainly led him and brought him there. Now, referring to this map, I, I didn't draw it on there because there is a route that pretty well just parallels the coast. Starts out the upper part of Egypt here. Actually, of course, you kept on the route. You go all the way down to, to uh, Memphis and could follow all the way up the valley to Thebes and so forth. But there, there was a route that followed right along the coast up here and went right up the coast of Israel and cut over 
uh, through the plain of Esdraelon over the top of the uh, Sea of Galilee and went on up to Damascus. That was called the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris. That was the main transportation route of those days. If somebody was traveling, let's say, from, from Syria to Egypt, they went on the Via Maris. It was kind of like the highway, the I-5 of that day, if you will. So we might say, uh, if God wants Moses to meet Aaron, wouldn't he send them together along the main route so they'd be sure to meet each other? Well, he doesn't do that. We might say, well, did God send them on the most direct route? Did God say to Aaron, now, if you go from point A to point B and Moses goes from point C to point B, you're going to meet there. What would be the most direct route? Well, I've drawn the most direct route on approximately here, and that's this one up here. It's called the Way of Shur. This region up here was called the Wilderness of Shur, S-H-U-R. And moving from, I just drew the road over from Succoth there. It continued over till it met the main route that went down the valley. Uh, across here, parallel to the Via Maris, actually, and then cutting a, a branch of it cut south down to the head of the Gulf of Aqaba and on down into Midian. That was the way of Shur. Now, that was the most direct route by which Aaron could have come out of Egypt and Moses could have come out of Midian and met each other. That would have been about a 300-mile journey total. In other words, 150 miles, you could say, for one, 150 for the other if they met halfway. That would be the most direct route by which they could have gone on a known road, a marked road. But the scripture indicates that they didn't go that way. They went this way, clear down to Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses coming down from up around uh, the top of the Gulf of but down to Mount Sinai, and then Aaron having to come all this route down here to Mount Sinai out of Egypt. Now, that was not a main route. That was kind of like some of the trails you follow up in the forest when you're hiking someplace. You know, and now you see it, and now you don't. And, you know, that, that was the route by which God led them down to Mount Sinai. Why in the world to Mount Sinai? I mean, it's a long ways out of the way. It added at least 100 to 150 miles to the total journey. I mean, God seems very impractical here. <laughs> I mean, you know, save a little energy here for the big task. Let's go the most direct route. But God calls the two to meet at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Why? Well, I think the primary reason was that God wanted to give to these two men a powerful touchstone of common faith. It was already Moses' touchstone of faith because God had said to him at the burning bush, you will bring Israel to this mountain and worship me here. And so now God is saying, I want Aaron to know this vision also. I want it to be a burning bush in Aaron's heart too. Because Aaron's coming cold out of this situation. He hasn't been at the burning bush. He hasn't been through the experience that Moses has had for 40 years. And so he wants Aaron to be at the point, that touchstone of faith, where the two can be of one mind and one accord to serve God. And if that isn't a message to the church, I don't know what is. To be of one mind and one accord in the service of God. Those of you who get the uh, letter from the cops who are down in South Africa know that in, I don't, was it the most recent one we, we got anyway, it, it tells of the fact that they had a conference of all the denominations in Swaziland meeting together and cooperating together for the common purpose of evangelizing the country. 
and, and suddenly they discovered a commonality they didn't even knew they, know they had because they had been functioning independently of one another, the various denominations. I mean, God wants us to dwell in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And denominations are fine, but they're, they're not so fine when they produce division. And when people get up and say, well, huh, I'm the da-da-da denomination and, and you guys really are kind of out on the fringe someplace and you're lucky if you even get in. And, and there are many denominations, that's the attitude. They won't even fellowship with somebody of another denomination because they do something that the other denomination doesn't think is right. You know? And I'm talking about something immoral. I'm talking about something like how much water you put on somebody when you baptize it. Or whether you believe in you know, certain gifts or whatever it might be. It's really sad. But Moses and Aaron were to be of one mind, one accord, one spirit in carrying out the ministry because they were to be, uh, Aaron was to be Moses' alter ego, if you will, and, and the two went to do the job. Aaron spoke the words God had given to Moses, and Moses performed the signs, and Israel believed. Can you imagine how this country would be impacted? If all of those people who call themselves Christians cooperated together as brothers and sisters in Christ for the common good, and I don't mean by all joining political party or something of that nature, but of worshiping together and praying together and working together for the salvation of this country, I mean, it would radically change this country. I mean, it would result, I think, in a massive revival. Because we'd be living what God has said we're to be, that all brethren dwell in unity. Well, let me just say that uh, Moses and Aaron met. Can you imagine the meeting? Two men walking alone together, meeting at the base of this mountain in the wilderness. Men who had not seen each other for at least 40 years. Did they even recognize each other? Can you imagine the meeting? of the two walking closer and closer and then running into an embrace. The scripture just sums it up in, in that little phrase there in uh, verse 27, and he kissed him. Imagine how much emotion was poured out as they literally cried, I think, on each other's shoulders and told of the past 40 years and all that God had done and all that needed to be done and the common cause to which God had called them. I think it was a wonderful meeting. And God was in the midst of it. That's what made it so glorious. Well, we don't have time. Next week we'll do the last verse there on how Israel responds to this, and, and that'll lead us directly into the first of the confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh. I think more between the God of this world and the God of the universe.